0: As you study the scriptures, as you listen to sermons, as you read the word on your own, there's probably something that comes out that is very clear to you. That this guideline for the Christian life, the way that we are to live out our faith as believers in Jesus Christ, makes us quite different than the world around us. This principle is not unique to the New Testament. The Mosaic law of the Old Testament that God required of his people Israel was designed to set them apart. And I mean really set them apart. These rules that they had were outrageous to the nations around them. In fact, they were outrageous to the Jews when they first got them. And in the same way for us as church age believers, the New Testament believer is called to be very different, set apart from the world. You understand that it's not so much how we eat or keep clean as the ancient Israelites were to do. For the most part, just from the outside, on the surface, we look and dress the same as everyone else, the world around us. The core difference, no pun intended, between us and the world is what's inside, our heart attitude. For the Christian, this is what we pursue Christ with. It's not just external legalism. It's not just doing stuff. It's the heart attitude. And this is all well and good. We understand this. We are essentially different than the world. And our behavior will reflect what is in the heart. But let's be honest. There is a particular aspect promised to the Christian that makes us different than the world that can be hard to swallow. Yes, ideally, We say, yes, it's for Christ, we'll do it. But it is a hard nugget to swallow. And it is the very issue, the very topic we've been studying for weeks, and that is suffering. We all suffer. All humans suffer. They suffer physically. They suffer emotionally. But there is a unique suffering for Christians. And when we look at the difference in us, between us and the world, when we want when we are promised persecution you ask the question who really wants that i again i understand like well if the lord wants me to do it i understand i accept it but no one enjoys pain no one wants to be persecuted uh, no in, in all the wonderful blessings of the christian life no one puts that on the top of the list yeah heaven yeah that's great You know, blessings, being able to pray to God, having God watch over me. But really, it's the persecution that I really love about the Christian life. No one says that. No one enjoys that. And what's more, it goes against the grain of our human nature. We are not only promised persecution because of who you are, because of who you follow. We are told, you can't get angry. You can't fight back. You can't take vengeance. You can't defend yourself. The gospel, yes. Yourself, no. And then, on top of that, to make us even more different, we go around, because the Bible says this is true, this is a blessing. Suffering is a blessing. Persecution is a blessing. Man, how, how long is your wired, jaw wired shut? Let me write down for you. It's a blessing because someone broke my jaw for the cause of Christ. It's strange. It makes us different. And it's understandable if you as a Christian say, Yes, I understand that I may suffer and I will try to glorify God through my persecution, but I hope it doesn't come. That's natural. That's okay. Like much of what we are to be and do, it simply doesn't make sense to the natural mind, the Christian perspective, on suffering in any way. Unless... Unless there is some reason, some aspect, some golden nugget of truth that makes it all click, that it makes it all rational. Unfortunately for us, there is. And that nugget of truth is not an idea, it's not a thing, it's not a concept, it's not a promise, it's a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. Not only does His life make sense of the suffering, His life and death make sense of everything we are to do and that we do do as believers. And as we continue on the theme of suffering, we come to 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 8 through 12, 22 rather. Would you turn with me? 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 18, I think I said 8, 18 through 22. And I'm going to read that in the NAS. Again, we're going to take uh, two, possibly three weeks to unpack this. But let's read the whole section. And again, we see with the word, the connective word for, that he is bringing us back in this continuous thought in which he has talked about suffering or persecution. 1 Peter chapter 3, 18 through 22. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Now, as we got to verse 19, if you thought, what in the world does this mean? That is natural. In this passage that we are going to cover over the next two or three weeks, There are two of the verses that are considered the most difficult verses to comprehend in all of Scripture. Verse 19 is considered the hardest verse by many to interpret in all of the New Testament. And to make sure you come back next week, we're not going to get there this morning. This morning we're going to spend uh, our time looking at just verse 18, and I think you would all agree there's a lot there. But over the next few weeks, in verses 18 through 22, we will look at four encouragements in suffering from Christ's victory. Four encouragements in suffering from Christ's victory. And that is the point that that Peter is making here. It is not, well, Christ suffered and so you can do it too. That's already been said in this passage. And you can use that as an application, as an example if you want. But what he is doing here is he is proclaiming the victory of Jesus Christ as a reason that suffering and persecution as a believer is what Peter has described it as. And this morning in our four encouragements and suffering from Christ's victory, as I mentioned earlier, we'll look at the first one, which is Christ's victorious propitiation. Christ's victorious propitiation. Let me read for you again verse 18 where we will unpack this and if you don't know what propitiation means don't worry I'm about to define it uh, probably in more depth than you would care to hear verse 18 again for Christ also died for sins once for all the just for the unjust so that he might bring us to God having been put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit let me define for you this word propitiation it is a theological word but it's also found in our new testament And this is important because this really summarizes everything we're going to look at in verse 18. And it's a key part of our salvation and understanding what Christ did for us in terms of a transactional way. Propitiation, that word, means to avert wrath by means of an appropriate transaction or sacrifice. Let me say that again. Propitiation, very on the basic level, means to avert wrath by means of an appropriate transaction or sacrifice. And just by that definition, you kind of get an idea of why this is so crucial when we talk about Jesus Christ and his death for us. See, propitiation goes beyond the principle of forgiveness, which we talk about and is a key part of salvation. But it also goes beyond the principle of the cancellation of sin. It is the forgiveness, yes, or the cancellation of sin that includes turning away God's wrath. And that is so important. In the gospel, in a gospel presentation, if you are sharing the gospel with an unbeliever, it is true. You want to tell them that in Christ they can find forgiveness of sins. Because of his death, their sins can be canceled out on that proverbial ledger in God's eyes. But there's got to be a why. You've got to bring in the wrath of God. You've got to bring in that from the very moment they were conceived, they were sinners, and thus they deserved the wrath of God. And that's where propitiation comes in. This word propitiation uh, belongs to the language or the group of words that speak of appeasement. It's directed to the need. It is a need that arises from the reality of the wrath of God. So when you bring in the wrath of God in your gospel presentation, you understand you have created a need. That need is not there if you just tell someone they're a sinner. So what if I'm a sinner? I enjoy my sin. I like it, says the person you're talking to. There's no need. Why be forgiven of sin? It is only when you bring in the wrath of God that you bring in a need. For forgiveness of sin. You need to avert the wrath of God. And this means, the means of which, this aversion, is an appropriate, going back to the definition, transaction or sacrifice. It has to be appropriate. It has to be right. It has to be be enough. And we know that's only in Jesus Christ. Don't turn there. I'm going to read these quickly. Where we find this word, Romans 3.25, speaking of Jesus Christ, God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed. Again, that's Romans 3.25. 1 John 2, 1 and 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins. And you see that advocacy at the throne of the Father is not just, not just they're forgiven, they're forgiven, but they are forgiven, I covered their sin, so hold back your wrath, Father. In verse 2 1 John 2, And He Himself is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. And 1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son again to be the propitiation of our sins. John Stott, an English pastor who is now in glory, wrote this, It is God Himself who in holy wrath needs to be propitiated. You catch that? It is God Himself who in holy wrath needs to be propitiated. God Himself, who in holy love undertook to do the propitiating. And God Himself, who in the person of His Son, died for the propitiation of our sins. He did it all. Stott goes on, thus God took his own loving initiative to appease his own righteous anger by bearing it his own self in his own son when he took our place and died for us. There is no crudity here to evoke our ridicule, only the profundity of holy love to evoke our worship. He needed to be appeased, so he put in the plan of appeasement. And then he himself, God, very God, Jesus Christ, was the very propitiation. You go back to that word, appropriate transaction or sacrifice. The reason it had to be Jesus, the reason it had to be God, is because no one else could do it. He was the only appropriate one to live a sinless and perfect life. And to summarize, there's two key realities in propitiation. The reality and seriousness of God's reaction against sin, which right there we could preach a sermon in and of itself, of the the vileness of your sin. Propitiation reminds us of the reality and seriousness of God's reaction against sin. Wrath, eternal damnation. Slaughtering his own son. And the second is the reality and greatness of God's love, which provided the gift which would avert that very reaction against sin displayed in his wrath. Back to First Peter. The whole point of this section that we're in now, in First Peter 3, is that if Christ was victorious in his suffering for righteousness, you will be too because of Christ. And although the whole section elaborates on this, it is in verse 18, where we read about what that suffering and victory entailed. And it's easy to summarize all of it with this. Christ died for our sins. And I say that because you don't always need to go into all the theological nuances and details when preaching the gospel to yourself or to another. Christ died for your sins. But... As we go into verse 18, we understand that there is more to it. There are details that God, through Peter, so graciously gives us. And so here, just in verse 18, Peter gives us these details fourfold. This morning, so these are four sub-points of our first main point in the outline, we will see the finality or the completeness of his death we will then look at the transaction of his death. We'll look at the purpose of his death and then the physiology of his death. First, let's look at the finality or the completeness of his death. Peter writes in the beginning of the verse, again, we're in 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ died for sins once for all. For, that word for, introduces us to a new section that justifies the teaching that we've seen in verses 13 through 17, again, again regarding suffering well. The focus here is on the victory of Christ. And so we're not so much, and I said this earlier, we're not so much given an, an example to follow, although we are, but that's not the point. He's not saying, since Christ suffered, you should too. Again, that point has already come out in the previous verses. What Peter is doing in this section is kind of capping off that whole whole kind of monologue on on, uh, on that whole discourse on suffering and to highlight the victory of Jesus Christ. As Christians, we know that Christ died. If you're not a Christian here this morning, you probably know that Christ died. Or that at least we know and believe as Christians that Christ died. This is foundational to the Christian faith. In fact, when you share the gospel, that's probably the highlight of what you say. Christ died for your sins. Christ died for your sins. The cross, the cross, the cross, the cross. We know this. But Christ didn't just die to show the way. He died because there was a penalty that needed to take place. Propitiation. See, sin entered the world through Adam, the very first human being that ever existed. And all of humanity has been born into sin ever since mankind, you could say, has incurred the wrath of God. There is no one free from that except from Jesus Christ. All of us. So something needs to appease the wrath of God. I mean, theoretically nothing has to. God could have just let the wrath of God be laid upon all of us. But if you want the wrath of God to be stopped, something has to be to appease that wrath of God, to appease the anger of God. And so on the one hand, you have the unbeliever who, by never putting his faith in Jesus Christ, never appeases God's wrath, does not partake of the appeasement in Jesus Christ, and thus faces the full brunt of God's wrath, ultimately with an eternity in hell. On the other hand. You have the one who has put his faith in Christ as Lord and Savior, thus taking upon himself the righteousness of Christ, because he, capital he, Jesus Christ, appeased the wrath of God. The penalty that the innocent, sinless Jesus took is now placed in the Christian's account. And in the middle, there is no middle. You either accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and therefore avoid the wrath of God because you partake of that transaction or you don't and then you choose to face the wrath of God one day. That's it. There's no middle ground. There's no purgatory. There's no lukewarm Christian. And as history progresses and then populations increase Though Jesus Christ is alive, though the gospel is alive for us, we understand that when you look at depictions, whether in a illustration in a book, or a poster, or in Hollywood, you understand that people dressed differently. They wore sandals. They walked on dirt. In other words, Jesus Christ dying for our sins is ancient history. And since then, Billions of people have existed, many of which want to have a right relationship with God. Sin, again, for all of these people in the last 2,000 years, is the problem and separates them from their Creator. So Christ, having died for our sins 2,000 years ago, look how many people have existed since. Look how much sin has occurred since. Look how much sin is not just okay, but is legal and promoted by our government officials and by our society. And more and more, we're the weird ones because we don't want to do those things that God sins. The logical question is, who's going to come again to pay for those sins? Is it really enough? There's way too much. Future generations should the Lord tarry. Who's going to cover those sins? Or if Christ died for our sins in the past, does another sacrifice need to be paid for future sins? The sins I've committed as a believer. When I prayed the prayer to become a Christian, I understood that God forgave all my sins before I came to Him, but I still sin every day. What about those sins? The answer, of course, to these questions is no. You know this. And I ask those questions not because you don't know the answer, but to highlight the beauty and wonder and eternality of that little phrase you can so easily overlook, once for all. He died for sins once for all. If you have the King James or the ESV, the English could lead you astray. Once does not mean once upon a time. He did this once long ago, but once for all, as translated by the NAS and NIV. It is done. It is final. It is complete. Not just for the sins of the people since Adam, but the sins in the future. The sins of the the people who have yet to be born. Who have yet to exist. It is done, it is final, it is complete, not because he doesn't want to do it again, because it was so brutal and painful, but simply because he doesn't need to. It was enough. We see the same phrase in Romans 6:10 and repeated several times in Hebrews with the same idea, the same meaning, regarding Jesus' sufficient sacrifice once for all. I'd like you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter seven. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 26 and 27 is one of the times we see this phrase. And it it really, I like this passage of all of them most because it gives a good picture of the significance this would have for the ancient mind. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 26 through 27. And if you're familiar with Hebrews, you know that he takes this Old Testament picture and refers to Jesus as the high priest, the great high priest, as he does here. Verse 26, For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests of the Old Testament, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people. Because this he did There it is, once for all, when he offered up himself. For those living under the sacrificial system when Jesus was alive, you understand what a big deal this would be. Right? Because even the high priest, they're offering sacrifices all the time. Because those animals, even though they fit the Old Testament regulations, being unblemished, being perfect, like perfect animal. Right? No, not hobbling. No, you know, the perfect animal. These would be sacrificed over over again, but even then those animals were not enough. Daily, a lot of blood, a lot of sacrificing, sore arms, big biceps and forearms, killing, killing, chopping, skinning. It was bloody and, and brutal on purpose to highlight the, the grossness of sin. But then Jesus comes and, and the writer of Hebrews says, like those human high priests, they didn't need to offer sacrifices every day for... Their own sins and the sins of the people because he did it once for all. It's over. Could you imagine if tomorrow around 5 p.m. as you're clocking out of work, all your friends are gathered there with cake and balloons and there's like, Hey man, it was good knowing you. Keep in touch. And you're like, what's going on? They said, You did so good today that you never have to work again. We're just going to keep paying you. In fact, one lump sum, tax free, done. Never have to work another day in your life because you did it. You are done. Right? Anything. Eat. Maybe that's not such a good illustration for those of us who like to eat. But those who think it's a burden, you know, you're on a diet, food's gross. You're done. Never have to eat again, you have full energy you survived the rest of your life. Not another cent spent on food. Not another second spent eating. You are done, my friend. Congratulations. Never again. Could you imagine? Kevin's bummed out. He likes to eat. But you understand what I'm saying here. I mean, done. You just imagine these people going over and over again. Finally, the perfect calf for, for our family to, to help us with the fields. No, no, no. That one needs to be killed for our sins. We need, we need to go and bring them to the altar over and over again. Jesus, once and for all, all done. What does this mean? I think it means a lot of things on a practical level. But I think even as Christians, we can be tempted that somehow our sin is so repetitive, our, that one sin is so gross that we need to somehow appease God. We need to make up for our sins. We need to pray more. I, I need to go back to church. I need to give more money in the offering or whatever it is to make up for that sin. And you know in your heart of hearts that's just so wrong because of the gospel. But on a practical level, we live that way. You need to make amends. You lost money for the company, you got to build that up. You took vacation days, you got to make that up. We live in a world where we need to make things up, and sometimes even as Christians, we are tempted, frankly what it is, is to forget that we are forgiven. That we need to just do something better to make up for that sin. Jesus did it once for all. The guilt you feel over past indiscretions or worldly lifestyle that you have repented of even before you were a believer, that's done. Christ has taken care of it once for all. Sure, you may remember it. Sure, it may cause you to stumble once in a while as you have flashbacks. But that is over. Christ took care of it. Stop letting it dictate your life. Stop letting it make you afraid to have relationships. Afraid to become intimate with your spouse. Afraid to do whatever. Christ died for those sins once for all. It is complete. It is final. Stop beating yourself up over things that if you were to ask God, God said, what's that now? Don't know what you're talking about. All I see is the righteousness and blood of my son, the finality of his death. The second thing we see is the transaction of his death, the just for the unjust. So it's so poetic, the just for the unjust. Jesus, of course, is the just and we are the unjust. When Peter calls Jesus just, he's referring to his sinlessness. And what you have to understand is that this means that his suffering and death were undeserved. There's nothing he did to warrant the wrath of God which he endured. Sure, on a practical level, right? He was arrested, they made accusations against him. We're talking about on a sin, wrath of God level. There was nothing he did to deserve the wrath of God. And yet he took it. Actually, I take that back. There is something he did. He loved you that much. He chose to love us that much to incur the wrath of God. We, on the other hand, deserve it. We are sinful. We are objectively guilty before God. We deserve God's wrath. And that's the transaction. In our place, Christ died. Second Corinthians 5.21 He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. So that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. If Christ had sinned, if Christ was unjust, then His death would have been warranted and earned and it would have only covered His own transgressions and not ours. Last week in men's group, we were talking about the danger, yet common practice of perceiving of God like us, to bringing Him down to our level. It is true, Christ is our brother, that we are to call up on the Lord with an intimacy exhibited and calling Him Abba, Father, or Papa, Daddy. But be aware, friends, He is not like us. Day-to-day, the practical danger of lowering God to our level is that we approach Him without the proper fear and reverence. And that can lead into a flippant attitude. Kind of like if you're speeding on the freeway and a CHP pulls up behind you and you look in your rearview mirror and you're like, Oh, that's my my cousin. He's not going to pull me over. He's not going to give me a ticket. And so you don't slow down. You're not scared because you're so familiar with this individual and you've brought him to his level and you've forgotten, yes, he's your cousin, yes, you used to wrestle as kids, yes, you still pull pranks on him during Thanksgiving, but he's a CHP officer. You see, on a larger scale, there's a danger of forgetting about the supremacy of God as it relates to our salvation. The very core of our faith relies on the fact that Jesus is nowhere near where we are. Just for the unjust speaks volumes. Not just a good upright citizen for a criminal. He is in a totally different category. The just for the unjust. This is the transaction. This is the substitution. This is the propitiation. The third aspect of his death is the purpose of his death. So that he might bring us to God. He said, well, I I thought the purpose was so that we'd be forgiven of sins. Same thing. Same thing. So that he might bring us to God. In fact, I like that concept a lot better than just being forgiven of our sins. So that indicates the purpose of his death. And he says to bring us to God. To bring about a right relationship or provide access for. This isn't just an objective reconnection of two separate parts. Plug that back in. Put those puzzle pieces together. This is a reigniting of a relationship that was long destroyed because of sin. Not in your life. okay? We're talking about reconciliation, becoming friends or have a relationship with God again. We're talking about humankind as a whole. That relationship was lost in Adam and Eve. And we're reconciled as a people in Christ. And that word bring highlights this relationship. That phrase brings us to God could be said to be bring us back to God. It was sin that separated mankind from the Lord. And through Christ's death we are re-reconciled to Him. What's more, the terminology Peter uses communicates the idea... That not just that we are okay with God, that we no longer face His wrath, but we have access to Him. This is very different than man made gods who are foreign, who are distant. Who are to be feared like our God, yes, but in a different way. There's no love there. there and again, talk about bringing, bringing lowercase g gods to human level, right? Subjective, unpredictable emotions. You never know when Zeus is just going to destroy. You never know when this goddess or that god is going to do this or that. In fact, turn with me to 2 Corinthians 5, verses 17 through 19. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 19. It says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away, behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses or sins against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. That's the gospel. We now have a relationship with God that we didn't have. By our very natures as deprived men and women, we could not have a relationship with God. Or we had an intimate relationship with His wrath. That's where we're headed. In His crosshairs, as people say. But now because of Christ, again all because of God, we are reconciled, made friends once again. No longer enemies. And think about it. Everything in your life as a Christian, from your prayers, whether it's getting on your knees and having an extended time of prayer, or what's well, it's just this quick one sentence in traffic, or when your boss is approaching your cubicle, whatever it is, to our reliance on Him. The comfort we find in difficulties, the, the hope and promises we have that get us through the day, the day get us through life regarding heaven, and being with Him. All of these things in the Christian life, all of that are because of Christ and what He did so that we could have access to God. Otherwise, it's it's all useless. It's all pointless. The person that isn't reconciled to God could say those things. They could do those things. It's like the little kid writing to his his famous director, put me in a movie, put me in a movie, put me in a movie. He might get a nice, uh, letter with a computer printed signature from his secretary's secretary's secretary. He's not gonna be put in a movie. It doesn't mean anything. He doesn't even hear it. He doesn't even know you, you're there, you're writing to him. And God in his omnipotence, he knows. But you understand what I'm saying here. It is all because of Christ, that he brought us to God. There's an intimacy here. Every every year, my family and I, we, we buy a membership, which is just uh, for non-profit organizations, is code for annual pass, <laughs> to a museum, San Francisco Zoo, or maybe the Academy of Science or something. We're, and and we're, 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 we're one of many. Right? There's a line in the members only entrance. There's a lot of people who do this. And you know, they send you letters, thank you for supporting this, supporting that, and the reality is people just realize that financially it made more sense to buy a membership than to buy tickets all summer. That pass gives us access. We are members, they say. It gives us access to that particular destination with no real intimacy. I've never met the president of the Academy of Sciences or the CEO of the San Francisco Zoo. I've never met the mayor of San Francisco because of my membership with this organization. I'm not even recognized by the staff when they scan my membership card. This is not how it is with God. You become a part of a family. You become a member, if you will, but there is a relationship. Christ didn't just buy you a membership pass through his death to have some sort of objective access to God where you're just one of millions, but God just sees you as one of millions. He doesn't really care. There's no intimacy there. No. He knows you. He loves you. He's with you right now. He's helping you. You're convicted by something you just heard. He's doing that. You're comforted after that conviction. He's doing that. You feel encouragement because though you're convicted, though you are struggling, you know you can get over it. That's God with you right now. No one's doing that with me. When I lose my membership card or I feel like something wrong with the zoo or I don't make it into the hours, they still charge me for parking for Pete's sake. And I think sometimes we view that like that, right? It's just a pass, my past gets me, uh, he listens to my prayers, uh, I get to go to church, I get to be part of the family of God, and every ten visits to church I get a free six inch sub, right? We just view it like some sort of ticket. And he's just so distant. He's distant in that he's holy and different, but he's not distant relationally. He is intimately with you. We have a relationship with him. And this, in the larger context of 1 Peter 3, is very important. The context of suffering. It's not that people are just hurting you because you're a member of an organization that they don't agree with. You are suffering because of this relationship that you have with God. And in that persecution, that relationship kicks in with understanding, comfort, and promises. Remember, We're talking about the victory in Jesus. No matter what may happen in this life, Jesus has already brought you to God. That relationship is not just access on this life. In fact, the culmination, the greatest part of it, is after this life, and it is done. Nothing will change that. And so when we talk about so that He might bring us to God, yes, it speaks of that relationship and intimacy and access you have now, But that death of Jesus Christ is literally, physically, one day going to bring you to God. And you will worship Him at His very throne. Finally, and very quickly, number four, the physiology of His death. Pardon me for those of you who are scientists if I'm not using this word correctly. Having been put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. We know from scripture and even from secular ancient Greek writings that the human is viewed in two parts. There's the physical and there's the spirit. The spirit cannot die. The soul cannot die. The soul is eternal. So what he's talking about here is he's simply contrasting the material and immaterial parts of Christ while again speaking of his death. While he died in the flesh... He was spiritually alive, and this is important because, as we'll see next week, then he went to go and proclaim his victory to the prison, to to, to the spirits who are now imprisoned. Okay, And, And again, that's the confusing part, which I will unpack for you next week. This highlights a lot of things. And this, goes, this brings us all the back to, way to the beginning of the gospel and his life, that he indeed had a human physical life. Before it was just spirit. Before he was conceived and born into human flesh. It was just spirit. Spirit cannot die. Our spirits do not die. No one's spirits dies. And he didn't even have flesh. And again, we're reminded by what He voluntarily did because of His love and His obedience to the plan of the Father and the will of the Father, what He did for us. And I've talked about this before, and and may, you know, excuse me if it's getting old for you, it never gets old for me. Obviously, the crucifixion was the height of His pain, but there's so much more pain, understanding that he, until that, for eternity past, He was spirit only. He never got tired. He never felt pain. He never got hungry. He never got thirsty. His throat never got parched. His stomach never growled. He never had to stop to use the restroom. None of that. He did this all for us. And really the importance in the context of what Peter is talking about and being made alive in the Spirit speaks of his eternality. It speaks of what we're going to look at next week in him proclaiming his victory to the evil spirits. And so, I'm going to stop there with the physiology of his death, just contrasting the two parts. And so, in all of this, we see that for us, Christ's suffering has a, if you will, a a double capacity. On the one hand, first, it's an encouragement for us as we undergo suffering. And secondly, it helps us focus on the point of our faith which everything, upon which everything depends. Jesus Christ's death. Our hope is connected to it. Our joy is dependent on it. Our future relies upon it. And so we're encouraged in the midst, and remember we're talking about not just any suffering, but specifically persecution, suffering for the sake of righteousness. We understand, yes, Jesus did this, and so we accomplish it, but more to the point, He is victorious. He is victorious. He is overcome. And that really brings a whole new nuance to when Jesus says, look, there is nothing man can do to you because all they can really do is kill you. And we think, what do you mean? Oh, that doesn't, what? You know?" But really, in comparison to the fact that he is victorious, that your spirit is alive and will one day be with him, Why fear? We have victory in Jesus Christ. This is the theme of our lives. This is the theme of our eternity. This is our surety for heaven. This is our surety to undergo persecution in a way, if we choose, that honors God. The king is on his throne. I remember walking down the steps from where seminary classes were held. And one of my closest friends in seminary was, fittingly, a man by the name of Noah. Though he was a high school principal for a few decades, uh, he hadn't been to school in probably 30, 40, maybe 50 years. He was in his 60s or 70s when he enrolled in seminary. Never finished college because of the Vietnam War, and rather than being drafted, he enlisted to be an airman, to be a pilot, rather. Uh, understanding the less chances that he would be killed. And so, he never graduated degree. And so you can imagine, to be in seminary at a master's level, though they were giving, they made one of the rare exceptions where they gave him a bachelor's degree, the work was still master's level. So he had a hard time and he was barely passing as he really hadn't studied on an academic level for essentially a lifetime. And it was discouraging, I'm sure. It was discouraging as he looked around and people got A's, A minuses, B pluses and once again he got a C, C minus, a D on an exam or whatever it may be. And I remember we were walking down the stairs, and he's like, how'd you do? I said, yeah, you know, that was a tough test, and I think a lot of people struggled. And he's like, yeah, you know, I I forgot what it was. It was a a pretty low grade. And you have to understand that this isn't, uh, you know, they're they're producing pastors. So if you don't get a certain GPA, you don't graduate. They don't let you through. And he looked at me, and it was clear that he was discouraged, and we were all discouraged because it was a hard, I think it was a Hebrew test. And he looked at me, and his face totally changed. And he smiled. And he said, well, the king is still on his throne. So maybe, someone may be persecuting you. They may be making fun of your faith. Maybe someone even threatens you with violence. Because somehow they did some mental gymnastics and say because you're a Christian you must agree with everything politically that they're against. And in the midst of your rational fear of getting physically hurt, you remember, because of his death and you have access to him, the king is still on his throne. As you sit there As some of you have, watching as someone way too young passes to the next life, you remember the king is still on his throne. And when you keep telling yourself that your fears are unwarranted and the doctor walks in and shows you the test results, and you realize that your fears were totally warranted because it's actually worse than you thought. You remember the king is still on his throne. When you can't find a spouse. When you finally find one and you guys can't have a baby when you're losing your job, when you realize you never want to leave from here, but never in a million years can you afford a house, the King is still on His throne. And that King, once upon a time, but once for all, died for your sins. That you might be forgiven, that you might avert the wrath of God. And though that King is holy, and righteous, and does not tolerate sin, he died so that you could have access and intimacy with him. And yes, it is hard. Yes, it is difficult. And no, it's not wrong to cry. It's not wrong to question. It's not wrong to go through bouts of sadness. But you remember that the king is still On his throne and your name and your problems and every cell healthy or diseased in your body is written on the palms of his hand and he loves you and he cares and it matters because he died in your place. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for this story was not is not fiction, it's not a cartoon, it's not a man who died and was not resurrected and has long since turned into dust and all of this is for naught. But Heavenly Father, you sent your own Son to die for our sins. Because of your wrath and our desire to avoid it, you demanded, you needed propitiation. You needed to be propitiated, and so you propitiated for us, because no one else could do it. And in the midst of our suffering, in the context of our difficulties, whether it's persecution or just the daily trials of life, may we remember what really matters. Lord, thank you for our humanity. Thank you that we can respond rightly with, with emotions and tears and happiness and, and sadness and clutching people's hands and wishing people wouldn't go, but at the same time, help us to remember the access and intimacy we have with you because you died for our sins. Help us to find hope and joy in greater things, more important things, because you, are King, though you came, though you died, you are on your throne. Father, we long for the day that we will be there. We long for the day that we are amazed at the dazzling array that we see before us, the beauty of your throne, the majesty of the seraphim and cherubim that worship you. But most of all, Lord, we want to see you. Though you are with us, we want to physically be with you. But until that day, make us faithful. Make us faithful. Help us to remind ourselves to preach the gospel to ourselves every day so that we might take hold of the reality of who you are which solidifies the reality of who we are. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.